It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. This week we're talking about the US, Europe and fraying economic ties across the Atlantic as Trade Talks founder and as the European Commission slaps huge back taxes on Apple, the world's largest company. Joining me on the line from Washington is Sean Donnan, our World Trade Editor, and here in the studio is Tony Barber, our Europe Editor. Sean, first of all, I mean, it does look now as if the hopes that we were going to get some sort of transatlantic trade deal are foundering. Certainly politicians in Europe are saying so. What's the view in Washington? I think there's one thing to remember, which is always that trade negotiations happen much slower than politicians would like. We're three years into these intensely complex negotiations, and they're likely to go on for several more years. The goal here in Washington and that President Barack Obama and Angela Merkel have stated is to try and get something done by the end of this year. That's unlikely. The big question is what happens as you go into the next administration. So the view here in Washington is let's try and get something done by the end of this year, but clearly a recognition that the political moment is slipping away. Yeah, and there does seem to be a big change in mood. I mean, you look at the way Hillary Clinton has backed away from the TPP, which is the Pacific trade deal. You look at the kind of protectionist rhetoric from Trump and Sanders. Do you think we may just be moving away from the age of these big global trade deals? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big question. I think a lot is going to depend on what happens here in November. I think there is a history of Democratic presidents running on an anti-trade agenda. It's what Barack Obama did in 2008, and then flipping at some point once they get into office. And so we will have to see with Hillary Clinton if that's what happens. But clearly, the big change this year here in the U.S. has been Donald Trump. And the fact that the Republican Party, this traditional free trade, business-friendly party, all of a sudden is one that is looking a lot more protectionist than the Democratic Party. And meanwhile, I mean, the irritation in Washington over the Europeans on trade issues has now, I think, spilled over into this unexpected ruling by the European Commission that Apple's tax arrangements in Ireland are a form of illegal state subsidy and that Apple now must pay some 13 billion euros in back taxes. Has that created waves in Washington? Absolutely. There's been an incredibly angry reaction here in Washington where we've had politicians like Chuck Schumer, who's the senior Democrat in the Senate, calling this a naked money grab. Republicans also saying this was the EU overreaching and actually reaching into the U.S. tax take, because this is, of course, money that the U.S. would like to see Apple pay in taxes as well. But the overall context of that is that actually it remains a kind of amusement here in Washington. And that's been a feature after the Brexit vote in June in the U.K. over how the EU functions and its relationships within and among member states. 
States. And that's the thing that people sitting here in Washington look across the Atlantic now and say, wait, hang on a second. The EU, uh, the European Commission, is reaching into Ireland and saying that they need to enforce their own tax laws, even though Ireland says it has been living with its own tax laws. Now, the view in Washington is, how could that happen? And how could a U.S. company be at the center of that? And then that backs up to this question, back to this issue of TTIP and the trade deal, which is a view in Washington that we need to do something to solidify the relationship across the Atlantic, kind of create places where we can have a more productive conversation on things like taxing businesses. And that's where the frustration is right now with Europe and what they see as the Europeans walking away from the possibility of something like this. Okay, well, Sean, thanks for the moment in Washington. Now I'll turn to Tony to get the view from Europe. Tony, we now have had a couple of quite senior European politicians saying that they think TTIP is essentially dead. Yes, both the French trade minister and the deputy chancellor of Germany, who is also the economy minister, Sigmar Gabriel, have effectively said these talks, which have been going on since June 2013, are now dead. Uh, It is not a coincidence, I think, that in Germany you have some important regional elections coming up in September and a general election for the German parliament in about a year's time. And similarly in France you have, in a rather more heated political climate, the campaigning already underway for the presidential and parliamentary elections in France in April and May. Now, in the case of the German deputy chancellor, he represents the junior coalition party in the German government, the Social Democrats. And he is trying to speak out, I think, on behalf of potential Social Democrat voters who have lost out in their view from the kind of globalizing, free trade, liberalizing initiative represented by TTIP. And this is the same kind of constituency I think that the French trade minister in the socialist government is also appealing to. They're trying to build up support among elements of French and German society that perceive themselves as having lost from big world trade deals. So when they say TTIP is dead, should we believe them or are they just representing one side of a political debate? It may well be dead in the sense of a really comprehensive, detailed trade and investment agreement that was originally supposed to be finished by the time President Obama left office, which would be in about five months' time. It might just be possible to have a less detailed agreement that relied more on voluntary arrangements rather than hard and fast common rules. Even that would be a bit ambitious, given the mood on both sides of the Atlantic. And explain this mood. I mean, it's quite striking, not so much in the UK, where I don't think many people have heard of TTIP. But you know, when I go to Germany or whatever, you see stickers on the streets, people demonstrating against TTIP. What specifically are they concerned about? Or is it not specifics? Is it just generalities? There are certainly, in some European countries, I'd pick out Germany and Austria as being a prominent in this respect, fears that somehow EU environmental standards would suffer as a result of agreements contained within TTIP. Those fears would be regarded as exaggerated in other countries, but they're quite genuine, I think, in certain parts of German and Austrian society. In the case of France, it would be connected more with 
things like what is known in France as the French cultural exception, the very unique qualities of French culture, French cinema, for example. They're protected sectors, and obviously they're worried that they'll have to dismantle, maybe at the say-so of Hollywood. Yeah, I think, again, those fears are rather exaggerated, but they've been around in France for quite a long time. The environmental fears in Germany and Austria, they've been around for quite a long time. And from the point of view of the body that actually does the negotiating on behalf of the EU, that's to say the European Commission's Trade Department, that they don't think that the talks are finished. They're holding the flag high as far as they can. But the reality is that there have been some 14 rounds of talks in slightly more than three years, some of these talks going on several days. And there's an awful lot of areas where the text proposed by the Europeans on the one side and the Americans on the other just uh, are a long way apart. And finally, I mean, you mentioned the Commission, and in this context, in the context of TTIP, they're the defenders of a stronger transatlantic trading relationship. But in the US at the moment, they're also regarded as villains because of this ruling on Apple that Apple must pay huge amounts of back tax. The Americans seem to think that Brussels in particular have their big tech companies in their sights over a number of things, competition, tax and so on. There does seem to be an awful lot going on in that area. Yeah, competition tax, I mean, domination of the internet in its various ways, the latest technologies, Google and so on. I think there is an awful lot of suspicion in Washington. What this is really about is the Europeans being nervous about the sheer power of the largest technology companies and the market share and their ability to always stay one step ahead of Europe. I think in the case of Apple, though, what the uh, Commission's ruling highlights is the difficulty of having common tax regimes across a 28-nation block where you don't, in fact, have harmonised corporation tax. And in Ireland, the government for a long time has made an effort to attract American companies with corporation tax rates significantly below those of many other EU countries. Now, the question is whether those tax arrangements were put in place in return for for example, uh, promises from Apple to provide certain levels of employment in Ireland and so on. Well, that remains to be seen where all that leads to. But you'll always have this problem of different perceptions of how to handle the tax affairs of very large non-European corporations in Europe, as long as you have different countries looking for competitive tax arrangements among themselves. Well, thanks, Tony. So, Sean, back to you to kind of summarise the situation Looking at this kind of uh, mutual incomprehension on both sides of the Atlantic, do you get the feeling that transatlantic economic relations are not just drifting, but they're in danger, really, of beginning to erode as irritation mounts on both sides of the Atlantic? Look, I think that's absolutely the case, that here in Washington, people have some real questions over the relationship right now. And that is going to be a big question facing the next administration here, and whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, with Hillary Clinton obviously leading in the polls right now. But we should also put that in context. And very simply, the U.S.-EU relationship economically on issues like trade and taxation and just broadly in terms of doing business in the world remains a much stronger one than the relationship that we now have between the U.S. and China or the EU and China. So it's got some more tests coming. It's a huge issue for the next administration here in Washington. But we shouldn't forget that it looks a lot better than some other economic relationships that the U.S. now has. 
Okay, thanks very much indeed to Sean Donnan there in Washington. Thanks also to Tony Barber here in the studio in London. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.